Welcome back to Wake Island. Just got home after drifting around the U.S. Last night was the first time sleeping in my own bed in over a month. And I feel like I'm so accustomed to driving all day that while I was trying to fall asleep last night, my body felt like it was still in motion. It's like without having a constantly moving horizon to zone in on, I couldn't focus. I couldn't sleep. And now that I'm back, I miss the momentum of knowing I could be someplace else tomorrow. That said, it was very weird to be away for that long and not have the usual postcard memories associated with travel. Most of what I remember is the time spent driving, eating, and sleeping inside a car. So many restaurants and hotels were closed. So many people just weren't able to hang out. And there was, of course, the potential of myself getting sick and being irresponsible and spreading it across the country. There were so many small interactions that make up a road trip that were subsumed by the pandemic and wildfires. The time away from home and friends during a lockdown has already become a very surface and interior memory. And I'm sure one day I'll look back on this road trip and think of it differently, but for the time being, I think I'm going to remember it as this haunting summer of social distance in the year of our pandemic. And today on the show, we have on Grant Meyerhofer. His latest collection is called Works, and it's out now from 1111 Press. As a writer, Grant has this really uncanny ability to manipulate text into new forms and genres. His books remind me of the performative and fluid nature of language and media and technology, the way words can insulate ideas into an atmosphere or be deconstructed into a new context. I think this quote from Brian Evanson sums it up perfectly. Meyerhofer is a relentless experimenter, someone who understands both genre and experiment sufficiently to torque the sorts of stories we think we know into truly unsettling and alarming places where by the end of them, our skin is buzzing and we're not sure what has happened to us. When I was younger, I I really got into writing when I was in treatment, when I was, I think I turned 17 the year that it like actually worked out and I was able to kind of stay clean. Um, That's so young. When I was seven, they thought that I had, it was either ADD or ADHD. And so I was put on Ritalin and that made me like, I, I basically didn't eat and I was kind of, I come up kind of mumbled my way through my days. And eventually it got to the extent where I was taken to Mayo and, um, I spent only one night hospitalized there, but then did outpatient for a month. And I think like ADHD was the thing they finally settled on. But I, and I'm only saying like this stuff because it kind of fed into like once I found drugs and, and drinking as something that could sort of change my thinking, I, I really, I became fixated on kind of only that. And I think, I started to kind of use drugs when I was 11 and what was your drug? I started with, with drinking and, but I would kind of take anything that anybody had the stretches where I was most consistently doing stuff. It was painkillers and 
just a lot of drinking and I kind of I, I hung around with people who were older than me and I don't know it, it got very out of control very fast and I'm also type 1 diabetic so like drinking that much liquor and stuff started to kind of wreak havoc on my health and so that and I mean the fact that I was taking you know whatever prescription drugs I could find or steal at a young age it just kind of I don't know it, it meant that I, I I went to treatment twice and I turned 16 in there and then the next year turned 17 and it was clear by then that I, I needed to kind of clean up or else I was I mean I wasn't gonna last and I think in a way too the like the hospital stuff when I was seven it, it just made my mind into this like problem area that as soon as I figured out that using drugs and, and drinking and stuff would kind of wash that out I kind of dove into it and, and didn't really think about anything else for that stretch of you know five or six years right and it seems like you were misdiagnosed which played a huge part in this and I'm curious when you were 16 17 and already in treatment had you discovered literature at that time were you reading at that moment is where your uh, sensibilities started to uh, bleed in into your psyche? Yeah, I, I had a friend, and he's still my friend, Sam Robertson. He's done, like he drew the co- or painted the cover for uh, works, and he gave me a copy of To a God Unknown by Steinbeck. And at that point, like I, I mean, I was kind of checked out of school, and I barely went when I when I was supposed to, and so reading didn't do much for me I think until the second time I was in treatment and I started to read that stuff and I started to read um I don't know addiction memoirs and and that sort of stuff and I I think the the desire to write or or kind of that whatever mindset I eventually reached where it was like, okay, this is a thing that works for me. It at first it was more about writing than it was about reading. I was reading a little bit because in, I mean, in recovery, you, you read a lot naturally. Um, cause that's just kind of part of it, figuring out how it all works. But I started to write a lot and they had this computer in my treatment center and would spend whatever time I could writing on that, just kind of printing out this stack of stuff. And it wasn't, I mean, it was a whole mishmash of, of things, but it it hit me that this was something that I could pursue because I didn't, I and I don't uh, really subscribe fully to any particular recovery program at this point. I'm, I'm medicated for other stuff and um, do like therapy and whatnot, but I think there was even a sense back then that AA or NA wasn't like going to be the full thing for me and and that's where writing kind of came in as like not just an outlet but sort of a way of engaging with the world I guess well I think is a way for you to clearly articulate yourself I think if you were misdiagnosed so young your brain feels so scrambled moving through life that you don't have like a context for or a, a way to gauge with reality and what you're saying and how you want it to come across does that kind of ring true to you as well 
I think so. And it definitely started to more when I was out of there and I, and I did start to read things that kind of struck a chord with me because I, and, and I think that's why I've remained focused on that. I, I'm not, lots of writers will kind of pursue other like art forms and whatnot. And I, I can't really do that just because I still, both the act of writing and kind of the notion of, of reacting to the world or something through writing and, and kind of, I don't know, existing as a writer, it, it did a lot for me. And I think it kind of still does where no matter how bad things get or something like that. And back then it was this sense of like, I mean, cause I was, I was sobering up right when most of the kids in my grade were just figuring out like just smoking weed and whatnot. And so it was really alienating and, and so reading and then writing as well definitely did make things more, I don't know, gave, gave things, I guess, a kind of shape that I felt was kind of more manageable. You're not only struggling with how do you interact with your classmates and people your own age, but you're also becoming an adult. So it seems like you're entering several different realities at the same time. And it must have made you have this very extra textured and layered outlook on reality during that time. And reminds me of something that you had written in the afterword of your book, Works, where you say, all I want is fiction, writing that opens up the world and lets it bleed a bit. And it's weird to think that, you know, the world right now feels as though it's bleeding out at all times. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it also feels very obfuscated and hidden. That must have just been such a, a heady mix for you to be going through at 18 years old. Does it seem like there's a through line from that moment to the kind of fiction you're writing in works? I think so, because there is, and it's something that kind of keeps me interested in fiction, this kind of overarching idea that you can kind of frame it academically, which isn't all that interesting, but the idea that language, this apparatus we use to arrange our world and, and kind of articulate like whether something is good or bad, whether something feels right or feels wrong, whatever it is, um, that language itself is this slippery thing. Like, like you kind of talked about where it's bleeding through, um, in really weird ways right now, but this sense that I, I used to say that language is a fiction, which in a way it is. And, and the way that each individual kind of structures it is going to be different from every other person's way of kind of whatever language it is, however they relate with the world and, and put it together in language. Um, I don't know if I would say like, I, comparing language itself to the fiction that I do or, or the fiction that I respond to um, and I'm interested in working on, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're one and the same, but I do think that the writing that I'm really interested in takes language as sort of the focal point and lets things kind of unfold from that. And 
it wasn't something that I really understood when I was getting started writing because I, I just kind of thought, oh, these books make me feel this way. So if I write and I feel, you know, passionate about whatever I'm writing, then that'll come across to a reader. And I didn't really understand like that we have to think about sentences as, I mean, the same way a poet will think about a line or something. Um, but once I started to realize that the idea of like language as this thing that fiction writers and, and all writers engage and try to kind of make meaningful for other people is, is the stuff that I'm most interested in. And it's definitely connected to that initial idea of like a stabilizing feeling that you get when you're just kind of randomly typing into a document or reading something that really clicks with you or anything like that. I think this is a good entry point into your book works. You introduce works as an appropriation of the title works by Edward LeVay. And I'm curious to know more about this alignment. Are you familiar with who Edward was? And if so, can you tell the audience what his book works is about? Yeah. So, and this is kind of connects to you as well. Cause he was, I, I guess his, his primary thing was more photography. And I remember, so right around the time that he killed himself, two books, one book came out, Auto Portrait, and then Suicide came out, which is basically like the writing of the thing was leading up to him actually killing himself. Yeah. Let me uh, preface this a little bit because... I did a past episode about this with a writer named Chelsea Hodson who had written okay. uh, an online book based on Auto Portrait. And so Auto Portrait is this collection of fragments that make up this very like pointillism style portrait of the author. And it's really incredible. And he also wrote another book called Suicide, which he turned in three days before he took his own life. And this book is him referencing another character, and it kind of indexes this character who may be a close friend, but it might also just be a stand-in for the author himself. And I think both of these books, in my mind, really push the envelope of autofiction to its most conceptual um, ending point, both in terms of just how brilliant they are how like accurate and uh complete they feel i think there is uh that's another like sort of connection here because uh, i feel and it, it doesn't really relate to works the, my book but um what about his book the, works i mean it's a couple of different things but there's this massive list of all of these kind of various projects and in some ways, um, it's it's maybe, and, and I don't remember if anybody has dug into whether or not this was something that he intended to actually like try to complete all these things, um, but it's sort of a raw document, and the reason that I wanted to kind of take it over and, and use it for my book was because I was taking some of my older stuff and some stories, this, this document that I created that never saw the light of day. 
um, the book Flamingos and then the book Postures and leaving them how in a lot of ways they were, they were originally written. So they were kind of more raw and, and um, I don't know, a, a little like, like I was never going to revisit these things ever again. Um, so I wanted to put them out in, in sort of a different kind of way, I guess. And I mean, that, that was what I was kind of taking from, from Leve's works. I think this idea of kind of an open document where some of these things had already been published in various forms. Um, but this would be sort of a, a raw state for them. Um, since I didn't want to really revisit that old stuff in like a major editorial way or anything. For fronting this project by introducing LeVay and aligning yourself with his work, kind of put all four of the book projects that are in this anthology into a different light in the sense that I started to really see and incorporate more of your identity and narrative into the overarching structure of the entire project and i know that that's not like the intention of it it's not like it's 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 purely fiction but i started to see a much more i guess conclusive vision of the artists behind it was that part of what you were trying to do with it as well yeah there was um all of my and i just finished writing something that is more like directly trying to draw on the like new auto fiction tradition. But there was, especially with postures, um, that was sort of the last thing where I really just thought, okay, I'm going to write like an auto autobiographical fiction um, or an autobiographical novel um, and use some of my own experience and some not and, and try to do it in this way where I was interested in sentences and and kind of the effect that it could have on a reader um but it was going to be the last thing where i i was mapping it out according to kind of my own experience and once i realized that that was out of print and and could be made newly available um there was this desire to kind of have it represent different points at which i've i've kind of approached a project in a in hopefully a different way because i mean postures is is fairly typical autobiographical graphical fiction um flamingos represented like the first time that i was trying to really like break things up and and see if i could put it back together in any sort of interesting way the user's manual was something kind of the first like test i ever did with like uh, editing a, a project through cutting it up and translating it and translating it back and, and sort of making these automated changes to it. Um, and then in some ways, the stories all represent uh, like tendrils kind of collecting or connecting the entire thing. But there was a sense of, okay, this one more autobiographical thing that I, I had published is now available. Um, and, and so trying to kind of represent my own mindset as I move through each of these projects. It reminds me of this conversation you had with a past guest of the show, Thomas Moore, where you said, 
Rather than writing something about language and disconnection and violence, I wanted to try and write something that was language and disconnection and violence. As garbled as that might sound, I'm working with translation software and coding and the like to rework what I'd originally written into something considerably more fucked up, but hopefully nonetheless new in its effect. Was that an aim that you achieved? I think that that was definitely because we had everything besides the user's manual and the user's manual was actually rewritten and kind of redone into something way different that was published as clog um with inside the castle Mm. and the user's manual kind of represents the first like and i think that was written i mean quite a while ago it was gonna whenever lauren's album uh the maze to nowhere came out that was and he even published like a pdf short from it but that was when i was doing a lot of that of of translating things and then looking into like public domain books that nobody would ever have any reason to look at and i was like even looking at there there was a website i found that had um like german manuals for tools and stuff and so i could translate that to english and then rearrange it so i mean basically doing like cut up stuff and i think through doing that i also figured out a way to make the actual writing process where I'm not doing that, you know, cutting and and messing around closer to what that might feel like, I think. And, and I mean, conceptual writing is like, I'm, I think I'm vaguely interested in that. Uh, but I, I think that kind of the desire with those cutups wasn't just to create like a weird document, but it, it was again about maybe introducing a, a vulnerability to it where I'm not even going to like, I, I'm going to take my hands off the wheel for a second and let this automated like converter to binary code or something decide what to do with this chunk of text to create a vulnerability in the writing process where I'm not even going to like exert command over what this thing means or or like what this part that i've you know rearranged or something has to do with what came before it yeah you know i found user's manual to be pretty fascinating and i'm curious to maybe hear what your description of it is when i read it it felt like a mashup of a an instruction manual for deciphering the shroud of torin on an old VHS tape about a saw. <laughs> I'm curious, does that sound like a fair characterization to you? Yeah, that's that's pretty close to what it was. And it was <laughs> the first, um, the first, I think that was the first time where I ever really collaborated with somebody where the idea that I came up with for Lorne was that it was going to be a user's manual for a saw that can't be improved upon and so it would be kind of this futuristic thing because it doesn't exist and it would have like images in it and it would have this section where the user of it could sort of document their thoughts and initially i really hoped to be able to kind of print it so it looked like a user's manual and everything and and like what i wound up doing 
when I changed it into that book, Clog was basically turned it into sort of a, a Ted Kaczynski situation where instead of sitting in this little cabin and mailing people bombs or something, this person was going to fixate over this saw. And so there is carryover between the projects where instead of seeking to like harm other people, this person in, in clog is using this saw to like cut off parts of their body as like kind of the inverse of serial killing, like slowly murdering himself. And so that, yeah, it started as something where I was trying to write a user's manual and incorporate like VHS stuff. And I would send Lorne stuff that I had like translated into, um, I don't know, some, I forget, Klingon was one, and then translated it back into English and told him, and it was like, you know, really supportive, like, yes, keep pushing it in this like direction because it's, it's, it feels good or something. And that's kind of what the process has been every time I've worked with John too, where I start with something and it becomes something way different by the time it comes out with inside the castle. And when you do stuff like that, you play a lot with the text and how it appears on the page. And in doing so, are you intentionally trying to talk about the fallibility of language or is there maybe a larger emotive theme at play? I do like just in terms of reading was always kind of drawn to that sort of stuff, stuff like um, Teresa Hakun Cha's uh, Dicte or um, I mean, there are other like the even I, I guess the most popular example would be like Lincoln and the Bardo where George Saunders sort of messes with how things look. Um, I'm not a huge fan of his, but uh, that idea of rearranging what something looks like and, and playing with different text or having things kind of bleed off the page in a way or like there's stuff in, in Parapetet where you would have to literally rip the book apart and to be able to see what it said because it goes down into that, I forget what they call it, but the, the center of an open book. Um, the gutter. Yeah, but but definitely trying to engage stuff that I've responded to as a reader that disrupted, okay, this is going to be a, a large block paragraph that opens it, here's some dialogue, that kind of stuff. I, I think that the onus is kind of on writers, whether it's fiction or not, to start toying with like what the actual thing looks like in the end, just because of, of the options that are out there, I guess. And is your focus more on syntax and language or distortion and madness? I think with the um, the user's manual, it was more like, the, and in, even the term distortion is something that I would think about a lot, like similar to a guitarist getting a new pedal, realizing that Google Translate, if you translate something into this language and then you translate it right back, it changes things and it alters kind of what it looks like. And so it's, it's kind of both of those. I think that I'm also interested in more traditional fiction that is very syntax focused. I'm a big uh, uh, fan of kind of the, the Gordon Lish school and, and the writers that have come from that. And I think I have 
as much of a strong response to uh, reading like Christine Scott or something as I do like Blake Butler stuff where he is using all kinds of footnotes for weird reasons. And like one page has one tiny line on it. A next page, the next page is this, you know, six page paragraph or something. So I guess it's kind of engaging both of these somewhat simultaneously, but I also do think that sometimes I, I favor one over the other. I've heard this term used so many times, but to, to be honest, I'm not actually totally sure what it means, but what is the Gordon Lish school of writing? Well, he, he started out as, as sort of an academic. He wrote some like grammar textbooks and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in the seventies and eighties, he, he went from being like Esquire magazine's fiction editor to one of the main editors at Knopf. And so there was this stretch where writers would want to engage in, with him. And it, it's been kind of reduced, uh, I think, to, to its detriment to him being the guy who notably cut up and, and like erased and, and uh, got rid of a lot of Raymond Carver's early stories. So I think that's the most like typical understanding of it that you would get. Was he editing them or did he not like them? What was the uh, reason behind it? He was editing, yeah, at, at Knopf. I think they published the first two uh, Carver story collections. And at the time, Raymond Carver was uh, pretty deep into his alcoholism. And so the stories were very like staccato and strange and didn't have a lot of resolution and were very like nihilistic in a lot of ways. And later in life, as Carver sobered up, he had achieved such a, a status in like kind of the American short story tradition that he was able to then publish his stories that didn't have that editing. And they were a lot longer and a lot more kind of meditative. And they did have more logical conclusions and, and this kind of stuff. But as that happened, Lish also, he, he wasn't working for Knopf anymore, and he would hold these workshops, and writers like Sam Lipsite and Ben Marcus and Brian Evanson and Christine Scott and, and all these writers started to kind of flock to him because he had, a, I mean, and people have tried to kind of fictionalize this, or write about it in, in a number of ways. He had a, an approach to fiction and an approach to teaching it that wound up creating or, or kind of inaugurating some of the most interesting work at like the syntactic level that's ever been done. And a lot of it was about he, another like famous quote of his is don't have stories, have sentences. So there's this, this very close attention paid to individual sentences as you're writing and figuring out how one kind of propels to the next one and that sort of thing. And, and it's interesting now because, I mean, he's, he's still a, a huge like, figure in, in literature, but like Brian Evanson came out with a book where he it, it was a there's a series of books where you can write about a book that you enjoy for whatever reason and he wrote about one of the early carver collections and talked about how his response to the lish edited ones 
was just very strong and it kind of i mean he wound up publishing a very violent and nihilistic book with lish called altman's tongue he talked about how that was like that approach to fiction was just something that he wanted to pursue altman's tongue wound up being i think the the only book of definitely of american fiction that got a blurb from gilles deleuze and and so there is like there are these kind of connections to to other writers and even in other disciplines where really focusing your energy on the language leads you to some interesting stuff it doesn't i mean it, it wouldn't be you know the the cup of tea for for a lot of people but for those that respond to it it can really reshape your perspective of the thing and it for me i found that it it almost puts it into uh, maybe like a painterly context or something where you've got these tools and you don't you you don't go into the thing thinking oh i want to write a story about you know uh, my first daughter being born or something like that or, or or write a story about a serial killer you kind of have, have this like idea but you just start with the language itself and that kind of carries you through um and kind of a relentless editing process too and that's all uh, kind of been the result of his editing as well as his teaching that dichotomy between the experimentation and directness and play of language and emotional component is that something that you also studied or is something that you tried to you know introduce into your own writing as well when i started i i just kind of wrote whatever came to mind and i read whatever i could and and there really wasn't a sense of concrete things that i could do to achieve something that i would have responded to as a reader and discovering discovering lish and discovering a lot of the writers that are tied to him um it turned it into something a little bit more than i don't know it's it's messy to talk about where like entertainment stops and art begins or something but there was a sense in the way that he talked about language and in in fiction writing it fiction writing being something that is about the practice of language the same way that you know playing the piano is about notes meeting chords and progressions and and this this sort of dynamic engagement with that stuff i guess it made writing kind of meet the expectations that i had already for it like i knew that it was more than you know uh, just just idly watching tv or something at the end of the day right. it, it was something i had a very powerful response to and i think i still I, I still struggle a lot with like does this matter does this you know doing this kind of work it's like the publishers that i've worked with i've been super lucky and everybody has been great but there is like you do come up against that notion of like oh i it wouldn't necessarily be this huge thing if i never wrote anything again or never published anything and i so i get caught up a lot in that still but i do have that kind of bedrock that i think i found in writers like lish and sam lipsight of this being something that it it is like i i do think that art is engaged with entertainment and the two kind of do feed one another but it it gave me a sense of something more and i think 
like that in turn connects to to someone like Wittgenstein who realized that philosophy it's all language like to to get across an idea you have to get across to another person yeah and so his thing then was to say okay well i'm i'm going to fixate on language then because that's like the most important aspect of philosophy and i I think reading stuff in this vein definitely helped me to tap into it and understand like that there was a a real worth to engaging language in this way and there was this tradition of writers who were aware of aspects of it that i just I, i really started to love fixating on what are those aspects that you do love and that give it value? I think one of them is on the side of, of like, and I know some people like don't like the word, but, but the transgressive side of things where, and it, it's nice because uh, like someone like Dennis Cooper was, I mean, he, he's a huge fan of a lot of the Lish connected writers and, and really does, I mean, I, I think that's why some of his books are, are on the shorter side, because he really treats his language carefully. And and, and a lot of the writers connected to the, to the Lish circle write about this, too. And like Altman's Tongue is is this insanely transgressive book where it's it's writing about these horrific things and and um, doing so in an unapologetic way. So I think that is like one side of it for me where you're you're trying to write about new things or you're trying to write about things that do push in in different directions um or that look at you know a a murderer or something in in some sort of a, a way that feels like it hasn't been done just yet and then on the other side it's kind of the mechanics that you use to get to that point. So I'm drawn to subject matter. If, if it's more directly transgressive, it features all kinds of fucked up sex or murder or whatever it is. Um, I feel that that just because reading Dennis Cooper and reading Desaad um, was a very eye opening experience for me. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like, I mean, I, I had, uh, like, seen fucked up movies and stuff, and... I was just to say, it's just totally different when you read their books. Like, the atmosphere and tone of it is just so much more immersive than uh, a film, which I think is a much more yeah. passive experience. Yeah, and and there's kind of a... I mean, I definitely had this experience reading Desaad where you feel kind of opened up, and, and there's, like, a cold that comes with it, I think, where some of his stuff is just so relentless and it might not even be long sections about sex. It might be him talking about the natural world or God or abortion or prison. Um, but you do have this this feeling of this person screaming back against everything. And, and it's really, it's, it's a powerful thing to get caught up in. And to some extent, it it can lead to like trap doors i think or or just kind of blockages where you're kind of thinking i don't care i i just want to read something that's fucked up and that's okay but at the same time 
you, you can kind of hit some missteps and, and go down some, some roads that don't do the same thing that someone like Dennis Cooper does, where he's not just writing about fucked up things. He is engaging the craft of, of literature. He is like tapping into something that, that goes beyond hostile two or something like that. Totally. And it's firing on all cylinders. It's got style. It's got tone. It's got atmosphere. It transgresses all notions of sexuality and, and norms. And in, in this way, that's very like elegant and clean and there's something just very um, meditative, almost like a trance, trance-like about it. Yeah, definitely. And you know what's so fascinating to me about your books is that, you know, at least the stuff that I've seen that you've put out with uh, John at Inside the Castle and this book that you've put out with 1111 is that you almost have to adjust yourself in terms of how you approach it. And I think... A lot of your work reminds me of going to a gallery or the experience of going to a gallery or a museum where you're given a bit of context that you're supposed to read before moving from piece to piece. And in your mind, you're reapplying that context to each piece of work within the series. And it's that approach and setting which becomes part of the tone and atmosphere you're immersed inside of so what is it about the format and physical structure of a book as an object that makes it so appealing for you i think that i think some of it is informed by person like lish where he's he's got a book called i think it's my romance where it's basically taken from a lecture that he gave um, at a university and he winds up talking about this skin disorder that he has and kind of talking about his life and talking about his, his father and, and his, his marriage and all of these different things. And eventually when it was put out, it was sort of framed as, as fiction. And so I am, I am really interested in the ways that writers can be performers and, the book can be a performative space. There is, I, I forget what it's from, but Wittgenstein talks about how like a truly great book of philosophy might make you want to throw the book across the room as you're, as you're reading through it. And I, I do like, I, I have had a very tactile response to the writers that I've, I've really loved. And I don't know, there's like a safety in, in the structure of a book where having one on you is, is kind of a nice feeling and, and, you know, getting to, to kind of slip away into it throughout your day is, is this kind of affirming thing. And, and I think that part of it is, is responding to that aspect of it, just like the physical presence of a book. And then it also had to do with the subject matter, but just as much as I've responded to, like excellent fiction writers. I'm also a big fan of writers that wind up creating texts or creating books as part of like a, a performance art practice. Or a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of Vito Acconci, who did a lot of stuff with text and experimented almost like in a kind of Stein repetition way. I, I'm a big fan of... of books that are kind of written by people who aren't necessarily writers in the first place. 
And, and I think that's kind of informed it for me too. And even, I mean, your stuff too, and every day was overcast was something that I responded to because it went beyond just the structure of like, oh, this is a novel about fucked up kids. It introduces photos in, in sort of the same way that um, like Tulsa does, where you have little fragments of text on the fringes of pages in there. And so I, I do, I think it's, it's a useful thing. And it's, I mean, the book itself is, is it offers a, an experience that other art forms can't really touch. And I kind of, I always, I always sort of stop listening when people start to think, oh, like is TV the new novel or something like that? Because mm-hmm. I really like, uh, I, I watch a lot of TV as, as I think everybody kind of does these days, but I also read and, and I also seek out new books pretty much constantly. And I also appreciate like a, a three hour film or, or, or going to a gallery or like, I, I think that trying to figure out which replaces which is almost not the point and and it almost just leads to a bunch of dead ends where you start to think oh well if people can watch youtube videos why would they bother reading because it's so easy or something where instead of doing that it, it should be about really trying to affirm these are the things that a book offers that other forms they just don't and and trying to really uphold that i guess no that's very eloquently put i think people really fail to remember just how immersive and like deep you can get into with a book. And there is something to be said about how incredibly seductive the object is. And your styles are so varied and experimental. It seems that you could easily transcend the page. Have you ever wanted to approach or have you ever wanted to take your approach to books and move to another medium? I I guess I, I, the same way that reading someone like Gordon Lish helped solidify why I had this response to literature and why it, it almost had like a, I don't know, it gets cliche, but like there's a calling to it that I really respond to. And I think that because of that, as well as some of my own issues with it, I, I like the idea of remaining devoted to books just because I think once you start doing one, it can be very tempting to just kind of veer into these other ones. And there are, there are people who have, who have done a great job of that. But I guess for me, I almost see like writing itself or the book itself as a kind of constraint. And I'm interested in the idea of someone kind of staying with that as as long as they can i i'm a big fan of of constraints wherever they can you know inform the writing process or i don't know even just the kind of the life that the the writer is living where i think for some people there there is a i don't know a, a monastic idea to remaining devoted to the book um and it means that that you know i'll continue to kind of publish in the way that I have with with smaller presses and whatnot but I, I like the idea of writing remaining devoted to writing itself as a kind of constraint that I, I like the idea of continuing embracing that right and you're obviously also clearly very beholden to experimentation is there any 
conventional media that you admire that may you also draw influence from? I was just watching a thing too where someone asked David Lynch like his his favorite film directors and he winds up just saying like Orson Welles and Stanley Kubrick and stuff because and he kind of says I like to work so I don't really need to to seek out those things Mm -hmm. um and so I think some of that is at play for me where like I I'll watch you know YouTube for a stretch one night and and be like perfectly caught up in that or watching television and and things like that where I won't necessarily connect it right over to the writing that I'm trying to do but I am well what are you watching on television Netflix stuff I I just watched a show called Marcella where it's it's about sort of a lady cop um and it's a that was a British show I've rewatched like more recently and at more times than any other thing in recent memory, all of the uh, Mind Hunter, the the first and second season of that, and I, I I think I do have a response to like David Fincher's approach to filmmaking because I I could do the th- same thing every couple of months with Zodiac where something about his approach is just very satisfying to me. And I think that carries over into mind Hunter where, and, and, you know, I've long been interested in, in serial killers and that sort of stuff. Music is, is kind of a big thing for me too, as something that can inform writing. And I even, I mean, like I, I like Han Lin, the writer and kind of poet writes in a vein that he calls ambient literature and i'm interested in that as well and and that sort of come up with the inside the castle projects that i've done where figuring out like the same way that i mean whoever it is can create like a wash of sound that you can sort of forget that it's there almost trying to write in a way that it's informed by that a big fan of like photography too Gregory Crudson stuff, and then uh, Jeff Mermelstein, um, his just kind of weird pictures of, of everyday life. I almost, and I, I like to look at photography as like an extension of writing because it kind of distills these these weird little moments from life. As we continue to go through this pandemic, I feel like my relationship to watching television has changed. Maybe it's in part because I haven't gone to the movies for so long. And maybe it's also part, partly because I've seen everything I thought I wanted to see and so much just content is kind of being put out there. I've started to really like digress in terms of what, what I like watching, you know, in terms of, I just started watching like fucking reality TV shows like 90 Day Fiance and, and actually <laughs> starting to enjoy it. But when I think back to February and March, when at least where I was, where I'm living was like heavily quarantined and, you know, you couldn't go outside past a certain time and it was really getting strange. I definitely have like this very like warm, fuzzy memory. It almost feels like snow day or, or something like that. And some of the stuff that I watched during that time really has this strange, like lingering impact on me. And I think as with a lot of people, maybe Tiger King was that thing. But mm. I saw a show called Tales from the Loop 
on Amazon Prime, and it was my favorite thing that I saw during the quarantine that I'm surprised because, like, I thought it was brilliant, but so few people saw it, and the people I know that did see it really didn't like it. So I'm curious Mm. if you saw Tales from the Loop and if you also had this similar relationship to television and the pandemic. I haven't seen that. I do... I've almost had this feeling like I, I've watched films over the course of this, but it almost it's it's kind of strange because everybody, you know, they declare people like declaring various art forms dead. But like the narrative film almost feels like deader to me right now than literature does. I think that like this has been it's it's a time and just an approach to daily life that does lend itself to to reading uh but then on the other hand of that it also means that that it's very easy to just kind of get caught up in a tv show or just looking at i i i don't know when it started but i'll watch stuff on on youtube for kind of like hours on end at night <laughs> like what I'm trying to think of like recent examples of stuff i watch a lot of like gaming videos that have to do with like video games that I played when I was younger and can Mm. kind of like just sitting and, and and, I mean, there are playthrough videos for like Mario on, on Nintendo 64. And it's kind of like, it, it makes sense to me why I respond to it so much because some of my best memories when I was younger, (laughs) it's like a, it's really nostalgic ambience to have on in the background. Yeah. Yeah, and I, especially when I'm editing something, I like to have something on in the background. But like when I was younger, I, I mean, I've played video games my whole life, but really remember the best times being when I would watch my older brother play. And it was <laughs> like a guarantee of being immersed in this world for the next hour and a half or so. And so I'll watch things like that, other things. I mean, I'll, I'll watch like reality tv and and whatnot like you said and and i do like in terms of writing i'm i i've always kind of upheld the idea that it doesn't make sense to box these certain things up that we take in as whatever like guilty pleasures or something like that but that it almost makes sense to try and pursue the opposite of that where we embrace the fact that we we watch 90 day fiance the same day that we you know might read from text by peter sotos or or whatever it is (laughs) i want to live in that world so bad (laughs) i guess i kind of do actually but (laughs) i wish other people were there with me (laughs) but it seems like it makes sense like instead of deciding that one is like worthy of really thinking about and and being proud to like go out and talk about it with people and the other is something to feel shame about and, and kind of hide away. Like if we're engaging one, we, we might as well think about it in terms of the ways that we think about the other things that we engage with. And I don't know where that's really going to lead. I, I just know that that is something that I, I do think about and sort of try to maintain where, because otherwise literature is going to kind of keep repeating itself every couple of years and writers are going to be people who talk to you about how they're reading Proust and they don't talk about 
like their everyday lives and they don't talk about like the bullshit that they they watch just to pass time or whatever and i guess that's sort of like in the the david foster wallace vein of um not trying to kind of praise one as as better or something than the others because they're all kind of things that we're taking in day to day when i look for a new movie to watch that i haven't seen or something that came out recently it feels like um scrubbing the bottom of the internet or something you know what i mean you're just like how did this get made who financed this who the <laughs> fuck is watching this this is so thin it's weird to think that more than three or four people are involved in making this and you're like this probably cost a million dollars or something it's crazy to think that uh, a, a group of people dedicated their time to this disposable project but it's funny that you were mentioning this ability or to put you know whatever high and low culture together or putting 90 day fiance on the same level as uh, peter sotos because at the beginning of this year i had i didn't even know but i tried i, re, I once recorded uh that tv show cops and i guess i had done the thing where you know it records the entire series and I noticed that one one night that I was like, damn, I have like 50 episodes of Cops. And I haven't <laughs> watched that show since, God, I don't know, since I was a kid, really. And I was kind of shocked by it. I was really taken back by how the intensity of it, the curiosity of wanting to like kind of see inside people's homes and the absolutely kind of carnage of it. And there's a certain kind of narcissism to the police and... Um, I was like, damn, I, I should like do something with this. You know, I had this, this kind of same impulse and I started just writing down like bits of dialogue from the TV show. And once you like took them out of the, the context of the TV show, not what the cops were saying, but what the perpetrators were saying was mm -hmm. really, um, profoundly sad and upsetting. And I started to really like kind of obsess over this. I don't know, you know, I don't know if it was a project or if it was just something to justify <laughs> watching hours of cops. But it was kind of amazing to kind of have this this realization and then the show gets canceled and we're seeing actual snuff videos on all channels of cops literally performing these public executions. I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious if you had any relationship like that to cops because it was such a weird moment to um, to engage with this like TV show that I knew was really stupid and reminds me of getting high in high school and eating Taco Bell and realizing like the real tragedy of it and the sadness of what's being actually said in that TV show once it was disembodied. Yeah, I remember... I forget which is which, but one of the, I think Josh Safdie, I think that's how you say their name, mm -hmm. uh, the, the filmmaker brothers, he was talking about, like, I think building up to making Uncut Gems or something, they, or he was talking about downloading, like, all these seasons of the show Cops, and I hadn't, I don't, I don't think I had heard anybody talk about it may be related to like Reno 911 but even then that type of show just hadn't been on my mind for a really long time but yeah same he hearing it talked about because I've gone back and like watched 
Are You Afraid of the Dark or, or shows like that. But I never would have thought like of, of going back and watching something like Cops. But thinking about it as something, you know, it's it's media that people can download for free and I mean, whatever. But thinking about it as like an aesthetic experience that people would want to return to was really weird because I just I, I remember watching it when I was younger and it being very kind of loud and really chaotic and really I mean like you said sort of sad but also just it's there's not I mean I, I guess there probably was in the hands of people who are editing it but it doesn't feel very structured and it doesn't feel secure or like safe the way that news stories even if they are about something horrific they they are a lot more regimented now and and what you see when you see it is more careful i guess um whereas with that it just felt like you were for a second watching this raw footage of something that you know you might never experience but there you you can't exactly look away other examples of things like that that kind of felt the same i guess like the the more like it's not mainstream by any stretch but the peter soto's book he did where it was footage from like old porno tapes where people were just kind of making conversation in in the van before getting filmed having sex yeah 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 he took a lot of the language from that i think it was called pure filth Pure filth, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was a specific pornographer, and he would pick up guys. He would have a porn actress, and he would pick up random guys and put them in this. I don't know. I don't remember. It was a van or a car, but whatever. He would have them just sitting there with this girl, and he would kind of ask them questions like, uh, "Do you think she's hot? You want to fuck her?" Like just these kind of questions. And he would film actual porns with these act, these dudes that were literally off the side of the road. And that's what the book is based on. And, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. That's exactly when I started writing down the dialogue from Cops. It was, it was pretty much exactly that project that it made me think of. Yeah, I can imagine that the... Because I can't think of any TV show then or now that kind of that that feels similar to that not at all i mean you you brought up the uh, the word chaotic when you watch like the first like five episodes from the 80s it's like complete carnage it's insane <laughs> and not to mention this is a show on a basic cable performed by public employees uh, yeah. it's quite a heady cocktail but I don't know, man. I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, Grant, it was a pleasure speaking with you, man. It's, I'm really happy uh, I finally got the chance to have some dialogue with you. Likewise. Yeah, this was great. <laughs> <laughs>